welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me here in the studio. First, an, an editor with the Saints Project and also an editor on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, Nathan Waite. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks. And again, joining us, our good friend, Shaylin Back. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shaylin. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Nate, today in our episode, we're going to be talking about Chapter 43. It's called A Public Nuisance. And uh, before we came on the air, we were talking, and I loved how you set this up. A lot of us know about Joseph Smith and his murder in Carthage Jail. And we have that scene kind of burned into our mind. The gunshots, the mob, the, the pushing down of the door, and Joseph leaping and falling from the window. We don't often know why. We just kind of have this vague sense of persecution or violence or whatever, but... Today, we're really going to learn why was Joseph in the Carthage jail? Some people have uh, been to Carthage jail or we've seen the church history videos or, or read about it, but that, you know, that there was a reason that, that he was there at that time and, and it has to do with persecution, but uh, specifically uh, things that he was teaching at the time and uh, people getting uncomfortable both inside and outside of the church. So let's talk about that. Awesome. Uh, well, let's just kind of set the scene for our listeners. You, you may remember from the last episode that there is tension building in Nauvoo at this time. Um, there's a man by the name of William Law who formerly was in the first presidency of the church. His brother, Wilson Law, is on the city council. So these are pretty prominent leader kinds of people. And we learn in this chapter that William Law is conspiring to kill the prophet. Right. So you've had a while where the laws and, and others that are involved with them are, are high-level members of the church and also involved in, in politics in, in Nauvoo, uh, but they've grown uncomfortable with some of the things that Joseph's teaching. And I think this is a great opportunity to see that the people that we label as villains in church history, that, that they're three-dimensional characters, that they have lives and, and families. And and I think it's, in, in some ways, you can sympathize with the laws that they have this certain idea of Christianity and what the church should be. And then Joseph comes along and is teaching things about the temple endowment and certainly about plural marriage and other issues that give them pause and make them have to stop and think. And I think we can all sympathize with that. I guess uh, at the point when you start threatening the, the prophet's life and start your own church and do that sort of thing, we can all agree that's that's probably too far. But <laughs> somewhere in there, we can recognize that these are uh, complex individuals and, and sympathetic individuals, and it's all about the choices that they make because they come up with these problems and encounter these difficulties, and, and what are they going to do with that? And I think the laws and these people made some poor choices, uh, but I think we can learn from their mistakes and, and how to handle our own disagreements and and conflict. Okay, and Nate, so you sure. said that the laws were uncomfortable with some of the teachings, and then you yeah. mentioned the temple endowment and plural marriage. So yeah. is that what they were mostly kind of stuck on and disagreeing with? Yeah, and, and you also learn, I don't know if it's in this chapter, but somewhere in here you also learn that um, William Law is also struggling with his own sins that, that he's been um, 
uh, accused of, of committing adultery. And so he's kind of working through that as well. And so again, you've got a lot of these issues that are all kind of brought to the front at this time period, and, and they have to work through them. As we're going to learn about in a minute, there's also this discourse that he gives in April that also really shakes a lot of people because it introduces new doctrine. So there's this group, uh, William Law and, and others have are, are meeting privately. It just seems so weird to me because it feels like the Book of Mormon come to life in Nauvoo. We have the we have the secret combination, and Joseph hears about it from a man named Dennis Harris. He's a young man, and he's been invited by this group to meet with them and basically plot to take down Joseph. What can you tell us about who was involved? Who were the conspirators, and what were they doing? Yeah, this, this uh, yeah, it kind of reads like a secret combination from the Book of Mormon, or straight from a novel of some like a like a mystery novel or something that you've got the secret group meeting in Nauvoo and and it's the laws and the Higbies and these other people that are against Joseph and now they're getting together and saying what are we going to do about it and so they're holding these secret meetings you can imagine them like in, in a dark room or something like that and they're at one point they're even administering oaths to people and saying okay are you going to be loyal to us against Joseph and so you've got these two kind of spies in there these these young men uh, Dennis and Harrison and Robert Scott and, and they're in there, and then it, at one point, it's time for them to take the oath, and they say, whoa, I don't know if we're ready to do this, and then suddenly every, all, all eyes are on them, all attention is on them, saying, wait a minute, how come you're not going to be with us? And they even take him down to the river and uh, threaten to kill him, and they kind of close their eyes and wait for the gunshot to come, and it doesn't come, and they say, well, if we kill these guys, their parents are going to come looking for them, and that'll cause us trouble. So instead, they let him off, saying, hey, if you ever talk about this, we'll kill you, and then they, they send him on their way, and... and well, how old were they at this time? Oh, Just man, so I can get that I think picture they're, in my they're, mind. <laughs> they're teenagers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, can you imagine that? Well, and after they were threatened with their life and told not to ever tell anybody, they went straight to Joseph Smith, They do, right? yeah. They show their loyalty to the prophet and say, hey, this is what's going on. And I, I, I think that's key to Joseph not being harmed at this point in time. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book because I, I just love the language as it explains this moment that's happening. Before the meeting closed, Francis Higby administered an oath of solidarity to each conspirator. One by one, the men and women in the room raised a Bible in their right hand and took the oath. When Dennison and Robert's turn came, they refused to step forward. Have you not heard the strong testimony of all present against Joseph Smith? The conspirators reasoned. We deem it our solemn duty to accomplish his destruction and rescue the people from this peril. This, to me, is straight out of the Book of Mormon. You mentioned that before, and it really is. And these are people that believed in the Book of Mormon. I wonder if they got that idea from, you know, these secret bands that were meeting in the Book of Mormon. They didn't read closely enough, though. Those were the bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nate, you, you mentioned that there's another doctrine that Joseph introduces, and it comes in the form of a sermon that he preaches at a funeral. There's a man by the name of King Follett, which... He's not a king. Right. You have some great names in churches. You've got King Fall, who's not a king. You've got Joseph's enemy back in, in Ohio, Dr. Herb uh, Philastus Hurlbut. Yes, he's, he's not a doctor. He's a favorite for me. Maybe their parents are just like aspiring their children to be do these great things. But yeah. <laughs> right. No, not, I, I've not been thinking king. about naming one of my kids president. That's, that's just, good. Just out <laughs> of the good. gate. But yeah, so we have this guy, King Follett, and he passes away, and Joseph preaches at his funeral. So he's actually at a, a, a general conference, and King Follett has recently died in an accident. He was digging a well. Perfect. And so Joseph takes the opportunity to say, uh, oh, my friend King Follett has died. I'm going to preach his funeral sermon here at general conference. And I, I think what's important here to realize is that 
death is always present, right? I mean, Joseph and his wife, Emma, have seen many of their children die, and Joseph's father has recently passed away, and everybody, I think, in Nauvoo has been touched by death in some way, and so I think it's just something that's on Joseph's mind, like what happens to us after we die. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book, and uh, then we can talk about this doctrine that Joseph introduces. Joseph explained that seeking knowledge and keeping covenants would help the saints fulfill the Father's ultimate plan for them. You have got to learn how to be gods yourselves, Joseph said, by going from a small degree to another, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you are able to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. Many of us who are members of the church have grown up with this idea that as God is, man may become. Like that seems super familiar and just normal to us, but this wasn't normal to them. This was a pretty new idea. Right, and again, you see people are willing to conspire to kill the prophet over teachings like this, that this is kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, this, this teaching that uh, we can become like God. Uh, and to get personal for a minute, I'm thinking about how wonderful and, and inspiring and, and hopeful this, this doctrine is. My, uh, my wife's about to, to give birth. And so it's a special time for our family. And as I think about uh, this little girl that's going to come into our family and, and the joy and also the, the, the sorrow that will come uh, along the way for sure, but there's nothing like being a, being a parent. And, and so this idea that we can become like God and become like our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, like what greater joy is there in this life? And to think that we can increase in that after this life, uh, that's great stuff. And it just feels natural to me. I mean, Shaylin, you, you just had twins. Yes. I mean, is that, does that feel that same way to you? Does it just feel like a normal part of life that we would have those ideas? I think so. One of the things that, as you were talking and telling your experience, it, it helps me to have a better understanding of how Heavenly Father feels about us when we have children. And so it's a neat idea to know that, you know, God is our father and that we have that same opportunity to be parents to, you know, other people that are going to do incredible things. I think it's amazing. But I'm also a little bit surprised that this is the first time that they're hearing about this because hasn't Joseph Smith received, you know, his visions of the the afterlife and the three degrees of glory? Does, did he not know at that time or share at that time our potential? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, th- I think part of the problem is we don't there are gaps. We don't know everything he taught all the time, right? I mean, it, it says in the record that he taught for two and a half hours. So there's a lot there that we don't know everything he okay. taught. Uh, but yeah, I think, the, I think the degrees of glory is a good example. But even back then, right, way back 10 years ago or, or more, like this was a struggle for early church members too, right? This idea that there's multiple degrees in heaven and, and, and so it's not just one place where you go. So yeah, that's another example of Joseph always trying to expand people's vision. This is what's going to happen. This is what life's going to be like. And, and some people embracing that and saying, yeah, let's go forward with this. And other people having a real struggle saying, this doesn't, this doesn't agree with what I already learned. And so people have to make that choice again. What are they going to do with this new knowledge? Okay. Well, and I guess it, to your point, Ben, too, you were talking about like growing up and, you know, being in the church, this is more natural, but this is a lot to take in for yeah, them. And they're right. coming from, you know, all of them are converts and right. they're coming from different religions and, and they're getting all of this new revelation. So it's and, a lot to take in. And Joseph never sits, sits still, right? There's always more that he's revealing. He's trying to take people along and saying, look, this is the vision that I have. This is the vision God's given me. Come along with me. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for some people. Nate, you mentioned earlier that Joseph spoke for two and a half hours. And 
I mean, if, if we had a transcript of that, that would it would be very long. Yeah. Where where do we? How do we know about this? Where are the records? Who recorded this? How confident are we that these are Joseph's words? Yeah, and I, I think that's a cool opportunity to talk about how you can do research based on saints. Because if you go into the footnotes, you can see the um, original sources. You can click and go over there, and then you also have a, a topic on the uh, the King Follett sermon. Uh, that you can learn more about the context. And then from there, you can go a, a level deeper and go to the Joseph Smith Papers website. And it, and for a lot of Joseph Smith's discourses, we don't have, we maybe have a snippet that somebody wrote down later that day or whatever. But for, for the King Follett sermon, we had multiple people. We had Joseph's official scribe, uh, Roland Richards, writing in his journal. Uh, I believe you had Eliza R. Snow and others in the audience that were taking down notes and writing those down. So you have three or four different accounts of people writing. And, and they're not word for word the same, but you can see, oh, this is this part where they recorded this and you can kind of fit them together. And so all together, you can get a better sense of what he said during those two and a half hours. So this is a really well-documented um, discourse by Joseph Smith. And just so our audience knows, Nate and others have spent a tremendous amount of time making sure that all of that works. You know, I can't tell you how cool it is to just simply be able to click a footnote and go right to the original source document. A tremendous amount of time and effort and care has been put in there. So please enjoy that, use it, and explore it because it's fascinating and it's just amazing to, that we even have these records so, so many years later and here they are, the original sources. It's really cool. One of the things I loved also about this moment in, when Joseph is preaching, there's a quote here I just want to read from the book and just contrast it. Our listeners will remember... Joseph went to New York in one of our previous episodes, and he preached, but he was, like, it was kind of nervous for him. Like, he had to sort of get up his courage to do it, right? And now we have him standing here preaching for two and a half hours straight. And I love this quote from the book. Standing before the saints, Joseph was no longer the rough, unschooled farm boy who had sought wisdom in a grove of trees. Day by day... Year by year, the Lord had polished him like a stone, slowly shaping him into a better instrument for his hands. We've got to experience, as we've read this book, Joseph's growth. And really, it's the growth that he's described for all of us, grace by grace and going from one small degree to another. I just thought that was a, a great uh, quote from the book. Now, there's building opposition here. We got William Law, so let's come back to that story there's an announcement made about a new newspaper in town. Oh, this will be good. <laughs> Tell us about this newspaper and, and what are they doing? So this is around the time that uh, William Law and his, his group have started a new church. They put uh, William in as the as the leader of that church. And they say, all right, we're going to – there comes out an announcement saying, here comes a new newspaper. We're going to tell you – we're going to give you the goods on Joseph Smith. We're going to tell you what's really going on in Nauvoo, all the dirt – and obviously the, uh, the church leaders are worried about this, this opportunity to have slander against them be made very public. When the saints were in Missouri, the newspapers published accounts, you know, very negative to the church. And my understanding from reading the book is that in some part, the saints kind of blamed that newspaper, that, that those the media basically, they, they blamed them for getting all this opposition going that ended up driving them from the state. I'm kind of wondering, am I reading too much into that? Do they fear that this opposition newspaper is just going to cause problems like they've had before? Uh, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, in, in this world, 
at this time, and that's the way that you that your voice is heard is is in print, right? And so you could have a local newspaper pick it up. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but then next thing you know, it's picked up in five different newspapers around the country. It's back in New York City, and so everybody is repeating each other in the press, and suddenly you've got opposition to the church just reaching this this fever pitch, and and that's what the, I think that's what Joseph and others are, are worried about happening because this is how I mean this is shaping public opinion in 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 this way that that I don't think we get today because we have so many different forms of media and different voices. This is like one voice that is so big that everybody just kind of gets on board with it. And so what did they ultimately do about this? All the opposition and negative press, I guess. What what yeah. did they do? So they get together and they say, well, what are we going to do about this? Because because the first issue of the expositor, which is what it's called, the Nauvoo Expositor, because it exposes the truth, so to speak, and it, and it outlines all these charges against Joseph Smith and against the church saying they're teaching all these false doctrines and Joseph is involved in all this bad stuff. And, oh, and by the way, Joseph and the saints are getting really powerful in Nauvoo, and this is a big fear too, right? And so, again, we, we were talking earlier about... Um, these are the reasons leading up to Carthage, and these are them, right? These new doctrines that people in the church are worried about, and then people outside of the church worried about Joseph and, and plural marriage, and especially worried about the saints in Nauvoo, how they're getting more political power, and what does that mean for us? Are we going to lose our power if the saints are getting more power? So you've kind of got all this in the air. This newspaper comes out, and Joseph calls the city council together and says, what are we going to do about this? And they deliberate for a long time, all in one evening, and they say, that's not enough time. We need to talk about this tomorrow. So they get together the next day, and they talk about it all through the next day about what are what are they going to do about it. And ultimately, they decide that they're within their rights to destroy this press as a public nuisance. Uh, the, the law allows for something that is a danger to the public to be disposed of. And so they so under that umbrella, they say, oh, that is exactly what the newspaper is, so we're going to go take care of it. And what I think is interesting, um, there's... Uh, again, if you if you start to go look in the in the footnotes, they have these deliberations, and it's just about um, unanimous their decision to do that. But you have this one guy named Benjamin Warrington who says, eh, "I don't know if that's the right decision. I think instead of doing that, maybe we should just fine them. Let's have a more moderate approach." And I think uh, it's interesting to think about when we're in councils and in groups, do we listen to all the voices, or do we just kind of come to a majority decision and, and push the others aside? Because I think that they would. I, I think it's fair to say that that was probably a mistake what they did to go and destroy that press because it led to to such bad things happening. Uh, but it, it just makes me think about how how are we handling our own councils? Are we listening to people who don't necessarily agree with us and taking their views seriously? Can we contrast for just a second? You know, certainly, like today, sitting here, like the destruction of a press just seems. Like you, you should never do that. Like that's, that's <laughs> okay. just not going to turn. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just not going to work out, right? Un-American. But let let's just contrast for a second. When I first learned about that, that what came to my mind was the experience in Missouri. Right back in chapter fifteen or sixteen, we learned about the destruction of the press in Far West. This mob shows up. They smash the windows out. This is a place where the Phelps family is living. They pry the rafters off, burn the building down, throw the press out the window. It's a really, really violent kind of thing. Right, right. And, and and they just come unannounced, right? Mm-hmm. In Nauvoo, we have the city council meeting. Even though looking back, we, we might say that was a poor decision. They did actually decide on it, passed a resolution, and then went over. What did the actual destruction look like? You know, I, I think it, I, I think you're right that there was less violence, right? You're, you're not you're not getting people tarred and feathered and thrown out of their house and that sort of thing. Uh, but it was. I mean, it was going in there, knocking down the doors, and throwing stuff out in the street and burning it and and doing all that sort of thing. I think we also have to remember the context of 
you know, th- this is in a way kind of the Wild West. I think you can get that little bit of that image in, in, in your mind that this idea that, hey, if we're not going to be protected by the people who are supposed to be protecting us by the state law and by the by the, by the federal government, of course, at, at this point, this, the saints feel like they don't have any recourse. They're like, we have to take matters into our own hands. If, if you know, we've been kicked out of Missouri, we've been persecuted every hand, it's time for us to to protect ourselves because nobody else will. So, so I think that's and and there's a strong tradition of that in 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 American history as well, right? That if the government won't step up and protect you like it's supposed to, then you've got to take matters into your own hands. Again, it it ended in the next chapter with with bad things happening, but you can understand where the saints are coming from. This is actually one of my favorite parts of this chapter because so I guess he it just was very vivid to me how Joseph picks up a ruler and he's talking with this ruler Mm because you can just feel his frustration he says when a man feels the least temptation to such intolerance he ought to spurn it in all governments or political transactions a man's religious opinion should never be called into question a man should be judged by the law independent of religious prejudice and he gets so enthusiastic that he actually breaks the ruler and it's kind of surprising but you can just feel that frustration and that it's not fair that they're being treated like this for their beliefs and so he's just saying nobody should ever have to feel this way about their religious beliefs it's it's so strong i mean joseph at this point is running for president and a lot of his platform is religious freedom right let's and it's because the saints have had this experience of of being persecuted for their beliefs and he's saying no i don't care i don't care if you are muslim or or christian or or whatever your beliefs are your beliefs, and, and you should be protected in those. And so, yeah, I think I think what's going on with the Nauvoo Expositor and with the city council acting is in, in that context as well, which is our religious freedoms are not being protected the way they should be. The fears of the saints in this, the Nauvoo Expositor, it, it literally just takes one day. Thomas Sharp, critic of the church down in Warsaw, just south of Nauvoo, the next day publishes in the Warsaw Signal this uh, information about the destruction of the press. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book. The next day, Thomas Sharp reported the destruction of the press in an extra edition of his newspaper. War and extermination is inevitable. Citizens arise, one and all, he wrote. We have no time for comment. Every man will make his own. Let it be made with powder and ball. So that's a cliffhanger ending. That makes you want to turn the page and find out what happens. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, the extreme language. It's just, he's telling them, get your guns and head to Nauvoo. Yeah. It's really hard to, to read that people acted this way. Can we contrast that a little bit with what Joseph is saying about his revelations and his teachings? What does he have to say around this time? I think that's a good point. Again, we, we've been talking about how Joseph Smith and his teachings especially have been this flashpoint, have kind of been this dividing among people, whether they believe it and they follow or they really turn against him in in dramatic ways. But he himself kind of wants to point away from himself. And so you can see... He's saying, "Don't don't look to me, but look through me to the revelations." Um, when those when those two boys come back from their meeting with the with the conspirators, and they're asking Joseph, "Is this all true? Essentially, are we are we on the right side here?" And he says, "I am no false prophet. I have had no dark revelations." And then at the same time, in April, in uh, I think it's in May, he gives a discourse where he says, "I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught." And so this idea that don't expect perfection from me, I'm, I'm, I'm a man, I, I make mistakes, I, I have my uh, difficulties and, and, and my trials, but look past the prophet to the, to, to the revelation. These are the words of God. You can found your faith in these and, and put your faith 
not in me as a, as a man, as an imperfect man, but in these revelations that God has given to us. Thank you so much, Nate and Shaylin, for being with us. I love that thought to end uh, today's episode that really that's what saints has taught me. Uh, you know, if you summarize that, saints has taught me that indeed our forebears, even the prophets and apostles were imperfect people. But as we look to their teachings, we can trust and have faith in those as the Spirit confirms the truth of it to us, uh, just as it did to the saints who sat and listened to the King Follett sermon. Um, and I think, too, we can kind of look at, I mean, Joseph Smith's life was very extreme with the opposition that he was experiencing and also the opposition that the saints were experiencing. And I, I remember reading this thought in the chapter, basically, that the same time that God is setting up his kingdom, that's the same time that the devil is setting up his kingdom. And so we can kind of expect that opposition, um, you know, when we're trying to do the greatest good and accomplish the the greatest things in our lives. Well, thank you uh, again, both of you for joining us today. And thank you for listening. Please join us again for our next episode where we will cover chapter 44. To learn more about the Saints Project, you can always visit saints.lds.org where you can explore the latest topics, videos, and more. You can listen to the chapters and read them in the Gospel Library in the Church History section. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast and many others at mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. 